0: How many of you are fans of Brene Brown? All right, I see quite a few hands. Uh, for the uninitiated, and uh, Catherine already shared a little bit about this. She is a research professor at the University of Houston, and she's spent the last two decades studying courage and vulnerability, and shame and empathy. She's the author of five number one New York Times bestsellers. She hosts the Unlocking Us and Dare to Lead podcasts, and her TED Talk on the power of vulnerability is one of the top five most viewed TED Talks in the world. Over the years, I've preached three sermons inspired by some of her previous books, uh, The Gifts of Imperfection, Rising Strong, and Braving the Wilderness. And she's distilled some of her core themes to the following, be you, be all of you, be all in with whatever you're doing, be all of you and be all in and fall, get up and try again is her third one, fall, get up and try again. Her latest book is titled Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connection in the Language of Human Experience, and it's also been made into a five-episode HBO series. Have any of you read or started reading Atlas of the Heart? I've heard from a few of you. Okay, great. You can share on the chat as well if that's, um, it'll just go to me, but if you, I've started reading that book. Now, as you all uh, rightly satirized in my recent 10th anniversary celebration, I do indeed recommend a lot of books to you all over uh, the course of a year. But this book is actually particularly great each year because I do read so many books i I've been making for more than a decade a top ten list, and this actually this book of all the books I read made my top ten list um, last year it's not only inspirational and you know a kind of equipping and resourceful and well written but also it really has incredibly beautiful uh, graphic design. Uh, And it's organized in a very useful way that just, it's not just like a dictionary that defines stuff, but the way she clusters emotions together, compares and contrasts them in in very, very uh, useful ways. As one of my colleagues said, there really might be a sermon on every page of this book. And although it's uh, worth owning a physical copy, uh, the Audible version is also quite good, and she, she reads the book herself and sort of comments on it as she goes, so she kind of adds extra stuff that she's researched that's, that's come out since the book was published. So that's worth considering as well. But before diving into the details of the book, I've also been listening to a lot, I've actually listened to all of them uh, over the years, of, of both her podcasts. And there's a mantra that she uses to sign off at the end of each episode that I find really, really interesting. At the end of every episode, she says to all of her listeners, stay awkward, brave, and kind. Stay awkward, brave, and kind. That valediction is another important distillation of her work, and I'd like us to spend a few minutes unpacking it. If you could offer your fellow human beings three simple words to live by— What would you choose? I'll admit that awkward would not naturally be at the top of my list of of the three words to live by. And that's, I think, why I find uh, Brene Brown so compelling and so worth continuing to revisit and listen to. She challenges me to be more fully authentic about all of myself, even the awkward parts, even when we inevitably stumble into situations in life that are awkward. Awkward. Staying authentic when awkwardness happens, it's easier said than done, especially if the situation is like, really, really, you're like, this is awkward, right? Like, it's, that's tough. And I wonder if some of you, like me, not only have an inner Brene Brown on one shoulder, you know, whispering you to lean in, be awkward, be brave, be kind— do you also have an inner adolescent, an inner middle schooler on the other shoulder desperately begging you, please don't be awkward, please don't be awkward, <laughs> right? Especially where anyone can see you or where your peers can see you, right? Here's the thing. Life is awkward sometimes or even often. Me, you, others, we're going to mess it up periodically or often, despite our best intentions. As you've heard me say before, quoting one of my colleagues, we are saved from perfection. It's an impossible ideal, right? We are saved from perfection. And so we can kind of start there. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do our best, that we shouldn't try to improve. We absolutely should. But it does mean we can give ourselves permission to be imperfect and then to learn from our mistakes and do the same for others. When Brene front loads awkward in her advice to stay awkward, brave, and kind, she's inviting us not to feel like we have to sweep the awkward under the rug or pretend like that awkward thing that happened didn't happen. Instead, she's encouraging us to lean into the true power of vulnerability, of transparency, of authenticity. You're just naming the truth of what just happened. In a line that I think about all the time, and I think this is just incredibly useful life advice, Brene Brown says it this way, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. I love that. If I'm I'm here to be right then I'm all armored up and defensive and in denial. I've got to push away anything, like if I'm here to be right. But if I'm here to get it right, then I'm stipulating up front. Awkwardness is going to happen sometimes, and it sets me up to be more open to feedback, to perspectives that I had not previously considered. Because as as, as many of you know the saying in anti-oppression work, that intent doesn't equal impact. Right? You can have all the best intentions of the world, and it can still have a negative impact. So it's kind of like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. Thank you for letting me know, instead of being, you know, telling people to deny their experience. That phrase for me really starts to get to the heart of what it means to stay awkward. I'm, not here to get, I'm here to get it right, not to be right. In each moment, I'm going to be the best of myself that I know how to be, while being open to learning how to be wiser more compassionate, more generous, more inclusive of a wider diversity of perspectives and experiences. What about part two of Brene Brown's admonition to stay awkward, brave, and kind? If it's not too awkward, I'll confess that when I think of the word brave, the first quote that comes to mind is from Game of Thrones. Those of you who know the books or the TV series may remember young Bran Stark early on in the series asks his father. He says, can you still be brave if you're afraid? And his father replies, when you're afraid is the only time you can be brave. I think that's actually really true. If we're seeking to stay awkward, brave, and kind, that's sage advice. Being brave doesn't mean being unafraid. It means choosing to act, even though it requires you to push through the fear. There's also a related quote from Brene Brown's previous book, Dare to Lead. It's the passage I've thought about most from that book. I actually printed out this one passage and put it up in my office because I thought it was so profound. I want to share it with you right now. She writes in her book, Dare to Lead, don't grab hurtful comments and pull them close to you. Have any of you ever done that? Someone said something hurtful to you, and you, you just grabbed it and pulled it close to you and thought about it and ruminated on it, right? She says, don't grab hurtful comments and pull them close to you by rereading them, by ruminating on them. Don't play with them, right? She says, don't play with them by rehearsing your badass comeback, right? Like, that's, that's one of the ways that we don't have to do that. And whatever you do, she says, don't pull hatefulness close to your heart. You know, it's like drinking poison and wishing the other person dies, Right? don't pull hatefulness close to your heart. She says, "Let what's unproductive and hurtful drop at the feet and this is key, let it drop at the feet of your unarmored self." Cuz I know I can feel that sometimes. If somebody hurts me, I want to armor up, right? She says, "No, just let it drop at the feet of your unarmored self." And no matter how much your self-doubt wants to scoop up the criticism and snuggle with the negativity, so it can confirm its worst fears or how eager the shame gremlins are to use hurt to fortify your armor. She says, just take a deep breath and find the strength to leave what's mean-spirited on the ground. You don't even need to stomp it or kick it away. She says, cruelty is cheap, easy, and a shit. Cruelty does not deserve your energy and engagement. Because often when we engage with uh, cruelty, we're just giving it more energy. She says, just step over the comments and keep daring. Always remember, and this is where she ends, armor, armoring up our heart. She says, it is too heavy a price to pay to engage with cheap, cheap seat feedback. Armor is too heavy a price to pay to engage with cheap seat feedback. That quote has so much to do with honoring that middle part of Brown's admonition to stay awkward, brave, and kind, and to do so while staying open, authentic, vulnerable, and transparent. The third part of Brown's admonition is to stay kind, and maybe that's the one that's the most uh, straightforward, that Dalai Lama comment, right, my religion is kindness. But let me add one more Brownism that connects us back to also being awkward and brave. Brown regularly says that Clear is kind, and unclear is unkind. I think that's so smart. Clear is kind, and unclear is unkind. We need to be willing to risk being awkward and brave enough to communicate what kindness really looks like, to share what we really need and want, what we know we really need and want in our heart, and to let others do the same. Clear is kind. Unclear is unkind. I wanted to start with those three simple words because there's so much wisdom to unpack just with Brown's admonition to stay awkward, brave, and kind. But now we're halfway through the sermon and I haven't even gotten to our new book, so let's turn our attention to that. First of all, why do we need an atlas to our heart? We've been carrying it around with us our whole life, right? Why do we need an atlas for it? Uh, why do we need to increase the vocabulary of our emotional intelligence? Well, it turns out that surveys show that the average number of emotions that most people can name is three. Mad, sad, glad. That's all. If you ask people, name all the emotions you can think of, that's what most people can say. Happy, sad, and angry. Far beyond those basic three emotions, Brene Brown's book gives us a guided tour through 87 emotions. I can name way more than three. I'm not sure if I could get to 87 uh, just without uh, a cheat sheet. Uh, But she helpfully, again, organizes them into 13 categories, and that's really one of the key parts to the book. Now, researchers have actually identified at least 150 emotions. This is something researchers fight about. You know, how many are there? Uh, But expanding just from three to 87 is is a very good start. As the philosopher uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein said, the limit of my language is the limit of my world. The limit of my language is the limit of my world. Having a larger emotional vocabulary expands and deepens our experience of ourselves, of others, and of this world. A technical term for this capacity is emotional granularity. Can you get really granular and specific about what you're feeling? And having a limited emotional vocabulary, it just makes it really difficult to communicate what we need and to get the support that we need from others. In contrast, if we expand our emotional vocabulary, that's strongly correlated in social scientific research with greater emotional regularity and with psychosocial well-being. There is power in accurate naming. As the psychologist Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life, and you will call it fate. Until you make what is unconscious a little more conscious, it will rule your life, and you'll just think that's the way it just has to be. You'll call it fate. Now, having an atlas to our heart, expanding our emotional vocabulary, that does help us become more conscious of what used to be unconscious. That doesn't make it's easy or just automatically resolved, but it makes it workable in a way that it didn't used to be workable. As the saying goes, what we resist persists, but what we feel we can heal, right? What we resist persists, but what we feel we can heal. For this morning, I'll only have time to share with you a few highlights from three of Brene Brown's 13 emotional clusters. So there's 10 whole clusters beyond what we'll even touch on this morning, but I'm actually going to schedule a part two of this sermon in the fall so we can explore further together. I chose the first cluster of emotions because it feels just so relevant to our situation today. It's places we go when things are uncertain or too much. Anyone felt like that recently, like things were a little too uncertain, a little too much? The emotions in this cluster include stress, overwhelm, anxiety, worry, avoidance, excitement, dread, fear, vulnerability. Already with that list of nine emotions, we've tripled our emotional vocabulary beyond mad, sad, and glad. When I think about places we go when things are uncertain or too much, I often think about the line from the singer-songwriter Carrie Newcomer. She says, I've been traveling faster than my soul can go. Have you ever felt like that? I've just been traveling faster than my soul can go. Between politics, the pandemic, all the various personal tragedies that have impacted various ones of us, have you ever felt that it's all just unfolding faster than our nervous system uh, and our psyche are really able to manage well? This is one of those places where a more nuanced, yes, I know, I say yes, strong agree, yes. Uh, uh, This is one of those places where a more nuanced emotional vocabulary can really be invaluable. Let me give you an example. When things are uncertain or too much, Brown invites us to notice the difference between stress and overwhelm stress and overwhelm. Before I tell you the answer, take just a second to notice. Is there a difference in the way you typically use those words? Because I I know I've often conflated them. I've just kind of used stress and overwhelm sometimes interchangeably. Brown challenges us to consider that this is one of those many places where nuances actually matter. She defines the words this way. Stressed is being in the weeds. Overwhelmed is being blown. Stressed is in the weeds overwhelm is being blown. If we're stressed out, we may have too much on our plate. We may need to reevaluate our commitments. We may need to kind of stick a step back, evaluate, say, oh, can you help me with this? And you know, other person help me with this. But if you are overwhelmed, you are no longer able to function. In Brown's words, doing nothing is the only way back for someone who is truly overwhelmed. And we need that language. We need to be able to say, I'm overwhelmed and I'm not even able to look at my plate and, and ask for what, like, I'm just, I'm blown. And I think that's, that's a really useful distinction. Are you stressed? Are you actually, truly, genuinely overwhelmed? So, uh, so for me, this summer, you know, that's part of what, I, so last summer, I basically, I've been, I've been going since the pandemic started, trying to keep this congregation going, keep connected with all of you. Like, I need some downtime this summer, and I'm gonna take it, you know, some over the next um, two months, especially. I'm not overwhelmed, but I can see it. I'm like, oh, it's, it's there. And if I, don't, if I don't take a break, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get real close and intimate with it. So uh, I encourage you to say, what do you need this summer? Are you stressed? Are you overwhelmed? Are you real close to overwhelmed? What do you need this summer? Along those lines of letting go and allowing others to help when we're stressed or overwhelmed, let me share with you one more quote that Brene Brown lifts up. This is from the writer Elizabeth Gilbert. Uh, Gilbert says, you are afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you never had control. All you had was anxiety. (laughs) Can anyone identify with that? As Brown says, uh, I feel a little called out, Uh, you know, but in a good way, right? You're afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you, you never had control. None of us ever really has control. All we sometimes have is anxiety. Uh, The second cluster of emotions that I want to invite us to explore is the places we go when we compare. Here the central emotions include uh, comparison, admiration, uh, reverence, envy, jealousy, resentment, schadenfreude, and freudenfreude. The Buddhist tradition warns against what is called comparing mind. And that's sometimes called, some of you may, if you've been uh, affiliated with the recovery community, there's a saying that beware of comparing your insides to other people's outsides or your perception, right? So that's uh, be aware of that comparing mind. Or in Brown's words, comparison is the crush of conformity on one side and competition from the other. Feeling crushed between conformity and competition. It's trying simultaneously, she said, to fit in and stand out, and just feeling sort of wrenched between those things. Comparison says be like everyone else but better, <laughs> right? Also from this chapter, though, I love... How many of you know the word schadenfreude from the German? It's kind of become increasingly uh, popular these days. It literally means pain-joy. It's pleasure at other people's pain. That's, that's schadenfreude. So, uh, but I love this power in expanding our vocabulary. There's also a German word, freudenfreude, which means joy at other people's joy. And I love that. Or there's an English word for that. It's, 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 it's really not used much. It's confelicity. So, you know, pleasure with other people. So we do have a word for that. It's just not used much. But I also love in the Buddhist tradition, there's a list of things called the Brahma Viharas. I'm going to talk more about that later in the summer. So I'm not going to go into that right now. But one of the four Brahma Viharas is mudita or empathetic joy. And it's the number one spiritual practice I do on social media. So empathetic joy. So instead, whenever I notice myself maybe being a little jealous of someone who's like doing some fantastic vacation or whatever, I invite myself to just be joyful at their joy. And it doesn't mean, this is the important point, it doesn't mean trying to manufacture that joy. I I, I experience it literally as opening my heart and just letting their joy flow into me. I don't have to make it up. I can just, in the same way that a lot of people experience this with when people are sad, you can feel that pain and sorrow flowing into you. You can do that with people's joy as well. Just being truly joyful that other people are joyful. For our third and final cluster of emotions, let's explore the places we go with others, which includes the emotions of compassion, pity, empathy, sympathy, boundaries, and comparative suffering. Here I want to underscore two particularly salient insights from Brown. The first is the difference between compassion and fixing. Compassion is being in solidarity with someone, being alongside, accompanying them. Uh, trying to fix or save someone is, is really totally different. It's not solidarity. It's kind of, kind of trying to reach in and manipulate. And Brown shares this really poignant example of what she means related to parenting. She said, I used to race in and flip on the metaphorical lights whenever my kids were suffering. I just wanted to rush in and, and fix it, right? She says, now I try to sit with them in the dark and show them how to feel the discomfort. Now, I try to sit with them in the dark. Can you feel the difference there between compassion and fixing? Let's just take a second to breathe that in. Just being willing to be there. Just say, I'm here for whatever you're feeling, whatever you're experiencing. What we resist persists, but what we feel, we can heal. And it can help, though, to have someone in compassionate solidarity while we're having really big feelings, accompanying us on the emotional roller coaster of our lives. Compassion, however, can lead to overwhelm. Uh, how much can we open to the suffering of others? Prentice Hemphill says it this way, and I love this. She says, Boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. <laughs> I love that definition. Boundaries are the distance between which I can love you and me simultaneously without enmeshing with you, right? Loving me and you simultaneously. Now, we've only begun to explore three of Brown's 13 emotional clusters. So, again, we're going to return this fall to the wisdom of the Atlas of the Heart. For now, I'll give the last words to Brene Brown on the power of increasing our emotional vocabulary. She writes, in this life, we will know and bear witness to incredible sorrow and anguish, and we will experience breathless love and joy. There will be boring days and exciting moments. There will be low-grade disappointment and seething anger as well as wonder and confusion. The wild and ever-changing nature of emotions and experiences, it leaves our hearts stretch-marked and strong. Stretch-marked and strong, worn and willing. My hope, she says, is that we will find that ground within us, that shore that offers safe harbor when we are feeling untethered and adrift, that will look to our heart when we're feeling Uh, untethered and adrift. The more confident we are about being able to navigate that place of heartfulness, the more daring our adventures, the more connected we are to ourselves and to each other, that interdependent web we use talk about. The real gift, she said, of learning language, of practicing this work of emotional granularity, Uh, the real gift of that is cultivating meaningful connection. It's being able to go anywhere without fear Of getting lost. Even when we have no idea where we are are or where we're going. So it's okay if you feel like that right now. Like, I have no idea where I am or where I'm going. This pandemic, this country, this world, right? With the right map, with the right atlas to our heart, we can find our way back to heartfulness and to our truest self. And I think that's part of why we come back here week after week. It's to remind ourselves of that and to remind ourselves that we don't have to figure this out alone. And I'm grateful to be on this journey with all of you. Let's rise and embody your spirit. Let's sing together. When our heart is in a holy place, hymn 1008.